Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. Today's episode is a Q&A where I field questions from you, my audience. I'm going to try to do these much more this year than I did last year. And um, with that, let's get right into it. So the first question, what is your take on the ethical implications of overpopulation? Okay, this is a good question. I think in general, overpopulation is really not a problem. The true problem is underpopulation. I think people have this misimpression that there's sort of a fixed number of resources in the world. And so the more people there are, the less resources there will be per person. Now that has a kind of obvious logic to it, but that's actually not the way the world has worked, at least since the Industrial Revolution. Um, You know, as the world has gotten bigger and bigger in terms of number of people, it's also gotten more and more well-fed. Extreme poverty has been going down in the world. Hunger has been going down even as the population has been going up because, you know, it's not as if there is, you know, just a pie of a fixed size and the question is how to divvy it up. You know, the pie is is growing and, uh, you know, because of the incentives of the free market, how they drive down the cost of production, which allows more and more people to, you know, have more and more food in their bellies, even if that progression doesn't happen as a sort of smooth line of progress, even if there are fits and starts, and even if the gains aren't always shared equally. You know, your general picture of wealth should not be that there's just like a kind of deer carcass and we're all haggling over who gets the biggest piece. You know, the deep drivers of wealth ensure that the cost of, of, of producing things are always going down. And, and so one thing that's also happening as nations are, are getting wealthier is that the birth rate is going down virtually everywhere on earth, America, pretty much every nation in Europe, all the developed nations in, in Asia. I mean, this is an especially big problem in Japan, which, which just has an abysmal birth rate. It's, you know, many countries are at risk of the birth rate going below replacement level so that without immigration over time, the total population will actually decrease. That's the problem the developed world is, is now facing, right? Potentially underpopulation rather than overpopulation. And I'm actually having Matt Iglesias on my podcast very soon to talk about this. He has his book called One Billion Americans, where he basically argues that America should try to use policy to incentivize people to have more kids and uh, have more legal immigration so that the total size of our economy doesn't get eclipsed by China as China becomes wealthier. But if you look at the simple equation of sort of GDP per capita times number of people, that is a, is a metric for basically how much, you know, how big a given nation's economy is. And Matt Iglesias makes the argument that the reason we were able to beat the Soviet Union in the, in the Cold War is because we had, uh, you know, a more fundamentally sound economy and a huge population. The combination of those two determines basically who is on top in, in the world. And we risk, uh, you know, China overtaking us, even if their GDP per capita doesn't go up so much, if, if their population continues to, to go up, 
they have such a huge share of the global market that they're now able to enforce their values, which are anti-human rights, anti-free speech, anti-liberal democracy, anti, you know, most of what America stands for and most of what the developed world stands for. So, you know, his argument, which is very persuasive, is that what we need to worry about is underpopulation, not overpopulation. You know, even within America, the the places that are thriving uh, are the places where the population is growing. And the places that aren't thriving are, are places that have hollowed out, places like Detroit and Buffalo that have seen their populations dwindle year after year. In general, that is a sign of decay. And population increase is a, is a healthy sign. I, I do think there are people just have a misimpression of how much space there is in the world as well. I mean, I don't know if this is still true, but at some point in the last four decades, it was at one point true that the entire world could fit in the state of Texas with everyone having something like a one-bedroom apartment, right? And obviously there are practical reasons why that couldn't actually happen, but that kind of statistic comes as a shock to people. It's sort of a scientific factoid that's interesting because people have this, uh, a really false impression of just how vast the earth is, right? Like land is actually not what is scarce, right? And if it appears to be scarce, it's because we have policies that prevent people from building, uh, building upwards, um, building in certain areas. So it's it's really just uh, I think uh, a false problem uh, this, this problem of overpopulation. Okay. Next question: If someone wanted to learn about Black history in the U.S., the Civil Rights Movement, uh, or wanted to participate in an organization to help underprivileged Black people, is there a non woke alternative? Okay, this is a good question. So I'll take these in two parts. If you want to learn about the civil rights movement or learn about black history and you don't want it to be totally taken over by woke or you don't want your materials to be woke, um, I can recommend some books. One of my favorites is a book by Clint Bolick called Changing Course. And in this book, Clint basically traces the history of the struggle for freedom as a kind of history of ideas, which is to say the sort of colorblind foundation of the fight against slavery and Jim Crow and how that morphed over time into a sort of race-conscious style of activism that came about in the late 60s and has permeated the anti-racist movement until today. Uh, that's really, that book is, I, I thought, really well done. So that's Clint Bolick, Changing Course. Another good book about the civil rights movement is Civil Rights Rhetoric or Reality by Thomas Sowell. Thomas Sowell is a huge influence on my thinking and my writing. And uh, he's one of these writers where I can pretty much close my eyes and point to any book he's written and recommend it to you without caveat. So 
civil rights rhetoric or reality is great. And um, the final one I'll recommend is called I Must Resist. I Must Resist is uh, a collection of the letters of Bayard Rustin, who is another huge influence on me. Bayard Rustin was Martin Luther King's right-hand man. He was the organizer of the 1963 March on Washington. He sort of, he founded or co-founded the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which was Martin Luther King's organization. Uh, He was a central figure in the civil rights movement, and he wrote, he basically documented in his letters the entire history of the civil rights movement uh, simply by writing to people and responding to people. So reading that whole book is was a real pleasure for me. And I can recommend it as a, a sort of more personal and interesting way to trace the history of the civil rights movement through the history of an individual. Okay, sorry, I'm a little bit sick, as you can probably hear. Got my tea here. All right. And the second half of this question is, if you want to participate in an organization that helps underprivileged black people, uh, but isn't woke, what can I recommend? Okay, so I can recommend off the top of my head two things. One is the Woodson Center, run by Bob Woodson. I believe Bob Woodson has been on Glenn Lowry's podcast, if I'm not mistaken. But Bob Woodson is really just an incredible person. He's one of these people where you you meet him and are sort of instantly taken in by his charisma and his warmth. You know, he's he's one of the, these people that if he wanted to could probably start a cult but has chosen to use his charisma for good rather than evil. And he basically has an organization that does outreach uh, work. They work with churches, they work in communities to do all kinds of really socially positive uh, work. And they have a a very non-woke kind of orientation to them, not in the sense that they are explicitly anti-woke as an organizational goal, but they just have a more of a Christian ethic, if you will. Um, And, you know, we're talking about working with people that are former gang leaders um, to reduce violence in communities, negotiate, uh, negotiate ceasefires between gangs that are going through a turf war. Uh, We're talking about former addicts, turned preachers, you know, and one thing I, I've learned from meeting Bob and sort of watching, meeting people that work with his organization is how important it is for outreach programs to be local and relevant to people. I mean, this is one perennial problem with government institutions trying to do good things is that you know, you get bureaucrats coming from far away, or at least places that seem far away, that aren't from a particular community. They don't know the values of that community. They don't have any credibility from the point of view of people in that community. And 
Nevertheless, they try to do good, but they just end up being ham-fisted or um, they just end up not being able to do anything because they're trying to, they're coming into a dynamic that they don't understand and haven't been steeped in. And so, uh, you know, I think one thing I've learned from watching Bob is is he really understands this and uh, he understands the primacy of people who come from a place and have credibility being able to show themselves to be role models to people. Um, So I really recommend uh, looking into the Woodson Center. And if I'm not mistaken, a portion of of Glenn Lowry's, uh, the proceeds of his show are automatically donated to the Woodson Center. Um, so it is a, it's a, it's a good place to donate money as well. And the other, the other, uh, organization I can recommend, uh, without knowing as much about it yet, as I, as I know about, uh, the Woodson Center is, uh, Roland Fryer's, Roland Fryer's project called Reconstruction. And, um, I'm, I'm going to try to get him on my podcast to talk about this and other things. Uh, Roland Fryer, of course, being the famous black economist at Harvard that has authored many papers on many subjects, but most famously papers which take, which have a sort of heterodox take on whether it's open season on black people being killed by the police. But uh, he has a project called Reconstruction, which is a race conscious K through 12 education initiative providing supplemental material for K through 12 education. And I mean, the way that I've uh, learned about it or, or sort of been told about it is that it's almost akin to a kind of Sunday school, a, a kind of Sunday school model for black kids. And it's trying to leverage all of the sort of healthy parts of a, of a cultural identity um, without any of the victimhood uh, or resentment and to try to leverage a kind of benign racial pride and cultivate a sort of a black identity that, you know, promotes creativity, promotes learning, promotes basically everything good uh, without all of the bad. And, um, you know, it's interesting because a lot of communities do have something like this. I mean, strangely enough, when I was a kid, I would sometimes go to Chinese Sunday school because my parents wanted me to learn Mandarin. And it was just, you know, a sea of Chinese kids who, most of whose, whose parents were born in China, but they were born in America. And they would go, they would learn about their culture. They would learn to speak Chinese. They would learn songs. It's a very positive environment. And so, you know, imagine something like that for black kids where, you know, something that reinforces all of the crucial skills that public schools sometimes fail to impart and imparts a version of the black identity that is shorn of all of the unhealthy 
aspects that are now being pushed in the culture, right? So a kind of positive black identity, and that's called reconstruction. And Roland Fryer is heavily involved with that. So you can check that out too. Okay, next question. What has been the response of the black community to you? How have you addressed the negative and the positive? Are you trying to build or lead a movement of black Americans to embrace your ideas? Okay, well, I'm not a natural movement builder, but I'm also not against building a movement. So addressing the first question, what has been the response of the black community to my work? Well, obviously it's been mixed. You know, I think some people have the impression that uh, I get unanimous uh, criticism and opprobrium from the black community. And I understand where they get this impression from. I mean, the black elite Twitter checkmark crowd uh, has definitely called me every name in the book. But I, I think that actually biases the perception of how I've been received in an in a way that doesn't reflect reality because the criticism I get, it, you know, much of it occurs in public where you, dear listener, can see it. But the praise I get much more often occurs in private. It occurs in my inbox. It occurs with, you know, people I know from my actual life coming up to me and saying that they like my work. You know, this happens pretty regularly. And that's the kind of thing that is invisible from the outside. So I think the criticism is likely to be public, whereas the praise I get from people in the black community is more likely to be private. I mean, that said, you know, it's really hard to gauge, even from my own perspective, what the ratio of praise to criticism is. I mean, there's another thing biasing, I think, people's perception of how I'm received by black people, uh, which is this, this constant misimpression that never seems to die that black people, the black community is as a whole woke and or very far left, right? I mean, this is an understandable impression. You know, black people on the whole vote Democrat, something like 85 or 90% usually. But, you know, the typical or median black American is a Biden Democrat that doesn't want any diminishment of the police in their own neighborhood. So really just absorb that fact. And it becomes easier to see how I get, you know, from my perspective, you know, maybe as much praise as I get criticism from black people. There's this constant sort of idea from people in the commentariat that, you know, black people all have sort of Black Lives Matters take on the police, for instance. That's just sort of one litmus test. And 
when you actually poll black Americans on you know, what we believe on this issue, you get something like 60% of black people say they want the same amount of police presence in their neighborhood. 20, roughly 20% say they want less and roughly 20% say they want more. So that puts at most one in five black Americans aligned with black lives matters orientation towards the police or, or the presence of police. Now, obviously far more than one in five black people would say they support black lives matter in the abstract. But when you drill down on specific policies, black Americans are not on the whole woke. So, you know, and, and this is another area in which it's always useful to remind people that Twitter is not the real world. So I, my sense is there are a lot of people out there that think I've been quote unquote rejected by the black community. And that's, um, there really couldn't be further from the truth of, of my experience. So that's what I would say about that. I mean, there, there's another asymmetry, I guess, to talk about here, which is, um, you know, like who, who is getting, who is buying all of these anti-racist books, right? Who's buying Ibram Kendi and Coates? Who's making these books bestsellers? Is it that only black people are buying these books and that's how they're ending up atop the New York Times bestseller list for dozens of weeks in a row? I mean, that it'd be tough if only 13% of the population are buying your books to even make the bestsellers list for one week. I mean, my point here is that, you know, the, the kind of person who levels the accusation of Uncle Tom or a sellout at someone like me, and, um, you know, it, with the implication that white people are the only people that like what I'm, that, that, that are buying what I'm selling, you know, first of all, it's, it's just, it isn't true. Uh, and and secondly, they would never level the same accusation at a Coates or a Kendi, even if most of the people buying those books are also white. You know, it it, it was very interesting to be a um, to you know to be a person who thinks the way I do at Columbia at in a hyper progressive. Uh, space racially and to be known as a writer that had all the wrong opinions on race, uh, you know, someone that was against affirmative action and someone that um, didn't think fuck the police was the proper attitude to have towards law and order. Like th- there's a sense that there's this, this attack I will get hit with many times uh, from people on the internet, which is, um, you're just saying that because you want white people to like you, right? You're just saying that because you crave the approval of the white community. And, um, you know, this I've always thought was an especially ironic line of attack because, you know, in where I'm from, progressive suburb of New York and, uh, you know, went, went to college at an Ivy League school, what would have gotten me the approval of white people would have been to be as woke as possible. 
right? If I wanted white people to like me, I should have been woke rather than anti-woke. I mean, one time I, I matched with a, a girl on Tinder at Columbia and I was excited to go on a date with her because we had a lot of uh, mutual interests. Um, we liked the same music and blah, blah, blah. She read one of my pieces and canceled the date on me, right? And I was obviously not very happy, but this kind of thing happens. And so, so that's just giving you a little taste of what the social incentives are at these kinds of places, right? If I wanted to sell out, I could not have done anything better than to parrot the Kendi and Coates anti-racist line. So, you know, it's, it's always been to me especially funny to get the uh, critique level that clearly you're just saying this because you want to be loved by white people. It's like, <laughs> uh, it's uh, pretty hilarious. Okay, next question. Do you agree with Sam Harris's implicit argument that it would be beneficial for our society to embrace atheism and secularization? Okay, so... I've heard Sam talk about this many times, and I think one thing he always usually says is he sort of, he quibbles with the notion that embracing atheism is the proper framing. And uh, I've heard him say things like, atheism should not even be a word, because all it names is the shedding of bad beliefs. You know, as he would say, you don't have uh, you don't have a word for being a non-astrologer. Like, if you don't believe in astrology, you just don't believe in something. There's no, we need have no word for that, right? I guess the real question here is, what are the consequences of shedding a belief in God? What are the consequences for an individual? What are the consequences for a society where fewer and fewer people have that particular belief? And my answer to this question would be, well, it completely depends on what that belief is replaced with. If that belief is replaced with a Sam Harris-like commitment to reason and consequentialism broadly, right, the notion that what is good in the world is increasing a common sense notion of human flourishing, Um, people living healthier, people living longer, people having more pro-social lives, less violence in the world, more opportunities for creativity. So if what replaces a belief in God is a commitment to increasing human flourishing using reason, uh, then I would see that as a very good thing. On the other hand, if what replaces God and in, in our in our society, you know, Christianity, is a kind of woke anti enlightenment, racial essentialism, race conscious legal regime, top down socially engineered equity, and uh, you know the sort of psychological mindfuckery politics of a Robin D'Angelo. You know, if that's what replaces Christianity and a belief in God, then, um, then that's not so good. 
and and there's a case to be made that in some ways the replacement would be worse than what it's replacing. I mean, there's definitely a case to be made that human beings have a religion shaped hole in our souls or in our minds and something religion like is going to fill that. And if it's not Christianity, it will be something else and perhaps something less rational, something worse for society. I don't know if I actually believe that, but if I were to make that case, it would, I mean, it would go something like this. You know, notice the similarity between the Christian concept of original sin and the concept of white privilege. Right. Original sin is based on this notion that you are born sick, right? By no fault of your own, you are born uh, saddled with this, this black mark that you must constantly fight again with weekly reminders of who the creator of the universe is, weekly reminders that Jesus died for your sins. And you know, no matter how many times you learn this lesson, it's never fully learned. So it's, it's this kind of, uh, this, this sort of mechanics of guilt, right? It's like you are guilty of something that you actually didn't do, but you did in some sense do, and you have to constantly repent for it. I mean, that is very psychologically similar to the notion of white privilege, right? What Robin DiAngelo in her book, White Fragility, is saying is by the mere fact that you are white, you are by definition a racist, right? It's not as if there are some racist people out there and there are some non-racist people out there. It's by the very fact that you are born in a racist country, you are racist in the same way that you're born a sinner. And even though it's, you didn't choose to be a racist, you have to participate in this program of critical race theory, essentially, to constantly, quote unquote, do the work and fight your own racism and society's racism. And you'll never be cured. You'll never become not a racist, right? Just like you'll never be free of sin. Um, you'll never have fully extinguished the, the black mark of original sin. But even though you have no hope in fully getting rid of this moral stain that you're saddled with, you still have to keep working against it all the time. You have to keep doing the work. I mean, that kind of scheme, it, it seems to be very appealing to uh, many people, which explains its success in the Christian context and, and partly its success in our race conversation is people are kind of hungry to be told that they're guilty and to be told that they have a way of constantly doing the work of repenting. This seems to be just a a feature of our psychology that various ideologies can exploit. And, you know, if we're comparing Christianity to woke, you know, it is worth looking at how different they are on the question of common humanity. Martin Luther King's rhetoric of sort of colorblind humanism 
was heavily reliant on Christianity as a kind of binding glue. He would say things like, you know, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. He would cite lines from the Bible that pointed to our commonality in the eyes of God. And I think this was a really, it was a really powerful tool that he had uh, to call upon where he could, you know, he could use the rhetoric of Christianity to bind white people and black people together that may have felt they had very little else in common. I mean, the fact that they were both Christian gave him a language to speak with that both blacks and whites could hear and understand. And I think that that is certainly something that Christianity has uh, to recommend it, practically speaking. And if we replace it with something much more divisive, something, you know, an ideology like intersectionality, which fundamentally does not agree that that our shared identity as humans is primary. That is just not nowhere to be found in the philosophy of woke intersectionality. So, you know, if we replace an ideology that is unifying with an ideology that's divisive, that's something to worry about. So I guess the answer to the question is, again, it depends what we replace religion with, what replaces uh, the beliefs that people are shedding as they become more secular. Um, Everything turns on that. Okay, next question. Why do you think racial consciousness matters in policing or in any other matter? If racial consciousness does matter in certain scenarios, what makes it not matter in others? How do we both logically and fairly make that distinction? Okay, so I think this this person is probably referring to um, something I've probably said somewhere about racial diversity being important in a police force, right? If I'm in general pro-colorblindness as a principle, how come I would violate that in the case of a police force looking at race, its racial diversity, um, and, and therefore looking at the race of individual officers as looking at its overall racial composition, caring about its overall racial composition. How do I square that circle? So what I would say is insofar as the racial composition of an institution has a direct relationship to the perceived legitimacy of, of an important state institution, or, or, or put another way, where a lack of diversity will directly limit the ability of an institution to do an important job. In those cases, it makes sense to care about the racial composition of an institution. So, for example, imagine that the entire NYPD were white. They were just to a man, white people, policing a city that is um, heavily non-white. Given what race relations are in this country and given the history of America and how 
um, race resonates with people, it's going to be more difficult for the police to be seen as having a legitimate claim on, on the monopoly of violence. You know, when, when people in the black and Hispanic community are, are looking and seeing every cop is white, what it becomes is it, it just begins to feel like the dynamic of a, a colonial enterprise. It begins to feel like you are being policed by people that are fundamentally unlike you and do not have your best interests at heart. And that's a problem because if the police are just seen as totally illegitimate, it makes it impossible for them to do their jobs. And, and um, that becomes a problem for everyone. It becomes a problem in particular for people in communities where there is violence that goes unpoliced where there are murders that routinely go unsolved and uh, kids who don't get the privilege of growing up in a safe environment. And so, you know, the police are, I think, a clear example where the racial composition of a police force directly affects the ability of the police to do its job. Now, it's worth stating that you know, most enterprises are not like this. I mean, I think the average, the average profit-seeking company overstates how crucial racial diversity is to making money in whatever enterprise it's doing. And, you know, diversity has become one of these unchallengeable values Nevertheless, I think there are areas where racial diversity actually makes a difference and is crucial. And I would say policing is one of those. If you want to have any kind of stop and frisk program and it's only white cops uh, stopping and frisking black boys, I mean, the, the picture, just it just looks like Jim Crow, right? And I think that becomes that pr problem becomes an actual problem because the police can no longer do their jobs they're just not seen as legitimate i think policing is a is a job that requires a high level of trust between the police and the community and this is something that has not always been appreciated i think policing is a job you can't just do with brawn and training, right? Even well-trained cops that don't do anything illegal, play by the rules and so forth, they really can't do all that much if no one in the community admires and respects them and trusts them. Like when you're trying to solve a murder, all you have is the intel sometimes at least, is, is the intel you can gather from people close to, uh, you know, the, the situation, right? If you're in a situation where nobody snitches because nobody trusts the police, partly because there's no diversity there, then it just becomes impossible to do that job. So I think most situations in life are not like this, but 
the police is, is certainly one. All right, next question. How do you have the discipline to read works that you feel are either intellectually dishonest or incoherent? I want to read and listen to people who have the opposite positions on issues to mine, but I have a hard time staying tuned in when I hear them make false equivalencies and ad hominem attacks. Okay, well, I guess I would ask, what exactly are you feeling when you're reading and listening to people you disagree with that's making it hard for you to persist? Is it that you get angry when they say something you think is dumb or uh, you get irritated and just put the book down in in favor of doing something that doesn't make you irritated? Um, I can imagine that. That is an emotion I felt too many times to count. (laughs) I mean, one practical suggestion I would have is whether you're reading a physical book or, or Kindle, just make marginal notes on everything that you find irritating, right? When you come across the sentence that just pisses you off because of how wrong it seems to you, highlight it and begin writing why you think it's wrong. Pinpoint what's wrong with it. Is it that they got a fact wrong? Is it that their logic is wrong? Is it that their belief is internally contradictory? Is it that their belief is consistent but um, would lead to horrible things in the world if adopted? What I find usually is once I pinpoint why I disagree with something, whatever anger I had upon reading it melts away because. I found a kind of satisfaction in the clarity that I've been able to achieve by pinpointing why I find it wrong. Like you can learn a lot about what you think and why you think it by reading things you disagree with and um, pinpointing exactly why you disagree with them. So that's what I would recommend. This is something I, I mean, I, like everyone, I think I enjoy reading something that I love more than I enjoy reading something I hate. But I have found a way to read things I dislike uh, with a certain level of charity while getting satisfaction out of writing in, in the marginal notes or on my Kindle why I disagree with something. So I recommend that. Okay, next question. Terms defining damnable behaviors such as racist, misogynist, or fascist used by the left or communist, anarchist, and evil used by the right are thrown around like hand grenades today. Do you think this causes them to lose their meaning? And if so, is there an appropriate way to counter their overuse without defending those who truly espouse such beliefs? So the short answer is yes, I do think the overuse uh, and in particular the misapplication of any of these words diminishes their impact, right? If you use the word racist 
to describe someone like Joe Rogan or, you know, if you use the word racist to describe someone like Mike Pesca or Don McNeil, if you use the word racist to characterize tens and tens of millions of people who say vote Republican, uh, if you use the word racist to describe every Republican candidate in my lifetime, uh, for, for president at least, well, yes, then it, you know, it, it doesn't smack most people as true in many of those cases. And because of that, it loses some of its power to shame actual racism. Right? Like these words only have power insofar as pe- people genuinely feel the appropriate reaction upon hearing the word, right? Like w- when I was a kid and I had no reason yet to suspect that anyone would cynically accuse someone of being a racist when they actually weren't. Back in those naive days, if I heard someone call someone else a racist, all my alarm bells would go on. I'd say, oh my God, so this, this person is a racist. That is, that is extremely important. It is, um, I'm inclined to believe it. And if it's true, that is a huge deal, right? Um, you know, it's like, if someone calls someone else a pedophile, like that, that word hasn't been so overused, right? So if I hear that someone was a pedophile, I have the appropriate reaction, right? Because it's a word that's retained its power. With the word racist, by the time I got to a certain age in life, I had heard it used and misused so many times that my instinctive reaction to it began to change, right? Like if you've heard the word racist applied more often where it shouldn't be applied than where it should, your mental heuristic for how you react to an accusation of racism is going to be informed by that experience, right? The moment you hear it, you're going to be thinking, you know what, it's probably another fake accusation of racism. It's probably another misapplication. And that's what it is for a word to lose its power, is that it doesn't elicit the appropriate reaction when used because it's been misused almost more than it's been used correctly. And everything I just said is, was a very complicated and long-winded way of saying that the boy who cried wolf effect is real. We've all known it ever since we heard that story as kids, and yet many people seem to have forgotten it. I mean, another way that you can make this point vivid is to point to examples in history where cynical accusations of, of say, racism or communism, to take an example of the opposite political persuasion, have have led to really regrettable outcomes. And I think McCarthyism, having the notion and, and history of McCarthyism in your toolkit as an example where false accusations of something led to horrible consequences is, is a very useful one. 
There's another one that that is lesser known, but has always been fascinating to me, which is Lysenkoism and the Lysenko affair. And just to give a brief summary of this, in, in the Soviet Union, there was a scientist named Trofim Lysenko who believed that you could turn one plant species into another. He didn't believe in Mendelian genetics. He had all kinds of quack claims and quack theories about how you could boost Soviet agriculture. But the basic picture is he was completely wrong. He was a fraud. He claimed to be able to turn certain trees into other trees. And yet his version of plant science became the official doctrine of the Soviet Union. And um, it's just a very interesting episode from history to see how the hell a nation that was really on the forefront of many other sciences like physics, how could they, have, how could they possibly have made something so absurd, official state doctrine? And actually implemented it when everyone in the world knew that plants passed on their genes and that that is fundamental to understanding agriculture. And you know, one way that that this happened was this was right after Nazism uh, was defeated and anything to do with genes and genetics had a connotation of racism and fascism. So if you look back at the arguments Russian Soviet scientists were having, it was just a clusterfuck of accusations of racism and fascism. It's like Lysenko was accusing every scientist who disagreed with him of being a Nazi. And it worked. I mean, that wasn't the only reason he won, but it was uh, a major feature of the, the, the battles uh, between Soviet scientists at that time. And uh, this is just a lesser known example from history where obviously an understandable react, overreaction to Nazism led to absolute absurdities and to real harm. So having these examples like McCarthyism and Lysenkoism from history is a really useful kind of landmark for understanding and not repeating those kinds of hysterias in the present. Okay. Next question. Taking into consideration the evolving connotation of white supremacy by those leveling it as an accusation and demanding its end, what do you perceive as the proverbial finish line for resolving this dilemma? Where is this all headed if everything is white supremacy? Okay, well, the position of critical race theory is that things like meritocracy, um, law and order, standardized testing, um, 
the basic underpinnings of our society are white supremacy in disguise. And the logical endpoint of that is that these customs need to be teared down and replaced with something else. And um, I don't think this is actually going to happen. But the, the real logical end of this is Ibram Kendi's very strange and scary idea that there should be a department of anti-racism, a federal department of anti-racism that is tasked with evaluating and pre-clearing every state, local, and federal law in the country uh, for racism, right? This is Ibram Kendi's idea. It sounds insane and Orwellian. It sounds like I'm making this up in order to caricature Ibram Kendi as a totalitarian, but you can look up his article on politico.com called something, uh, pass it, pass an anti-racist constitutional amendment. He also wrote the same thing in the Washington post, but I mean, the idea would be to have a federal department of anti-racism that has veto power over every state, local and federal law in the country. And if you want to pass a law, it would have to go through a group of bureaucrats of quote unquote anti-racist experts who would determine whether the effect of this law would be to promote equality of outcome or to push it further away to increase inequity. Um, I mean, needless to say, this is a crazy idea and it, it really obsesses over this sort of statistical equality between groups that has very little to do with whether the nation is actually moving in a good direction. I mean, so like consider that for something like life expectancy, if white and black life, life expectancy go up in lockstep, there will still always be a gap because white people had such a health head start, right? And that's true of every metric. It's like if your only metric is whether the average is equal between two groups of people that have all kinds of demographic and cultural differences, that's just a very bad metric for understanding actually how much those groups are flourishing and whether we're making progress and what the problems are. So this, this notion that Everything that increases racial equity, by which I mean equal outcomes, right? Everything that increases racial equity is, is good and everything that decreases it is bad or racist, as Kendi would say. This is just, this is an absurd definition of racism that almost nobody but Ibram Kendi can can really say that they live by. You know, by this definition, capital gains tax cut, as Ibram Kendi said, would be a racist policy. You know, forgiving student loan debt would probably be a racist policy by this metric, given that, you know, most 
the people who have the most student loan debt tend to be from the, you know, upper, the highest quintile of the country and tend to have, you know, tend to be white or are more likely to be white than the general population, right? Like most of the student loan debt is held by people with the highest loans, people who have loans from med school and top law schools. And, you know, that share of the population is not identical to the census, certainly. I mean, you get into all kinds of absurdities when you measure policies by this metric. But I digress a little bit from the question. I mean, the finish line is the abolition of any structure that has a a whiff of quote-unquote whiteness to it and its replacement with something new. And um, this is dangerous because a lot of the institutions and sort of basic structures of society that allow progress to happen, that allow allow for the stability that is a prerequisite to any kind of uh, program for to increase social justice. A lot of those are defined as white supremacy under the CRT framework. So, I mean, if you if you ditch the the structure and the whole building collapses, uh, there it's impossible to push for social justice out of the rubble, right? So, that would be the finish line logically of critical race theory. Um, I don't think that will be the actual finish line of our culture. I'm much more optimistic, but I'll leave that there. Okay, final question. What is your most conservative viewpoint and your most liberal viewpoint? That's a good, good question. So I think my most conservative viewpoints uh, are probably the following. We need a colorblind legal regime in this country. We need to end race-based affirmative action. Um, I really do view colorblind policy as a matter of fundamental principle. Uh, It was the basis and it was the goal of the civil rights movement. And it's a goal we have simply abandoned. So, I mean, that puts me squarely against many of the policies popular among Democrats right now. Like the notion that in, in New York, this Department of Health has prioritized COVID antivirals for people of color, which is to say, according to the official document by which they are triaging these antivirals, a person of color can automatically get them, whereas a white person needs a comorbidity. And I've seen at least one video on Tucker Carlson of a white guy asking for COVID antivirals and being rejected by a nurse who is sort of just doing her job. And he asks why he's being rejected. He asks if he were Hispanic or black and otherwise the same, could he get them? And she says, yes. And he says, so I'm being rejected for these drugs because of the color of my skin. And she goes, that's the policy. I mean, I am completely against that. 
I think it is an absolute betrayal of the goal of the civil rights movement. And people who try to convince you that that is in line with what Martin Luther King would have wanted are selling you propaganda. That's bullshit. Um, and it's, it's bullshit that is doing a lot of work in our culture right now, but it's bullshit nonetheless. And that is probably one of my most conservative viewpoints. I mean, I I would add that my general belief that America is one of the least racist places to live probably puts me on the conservative end of the spectrum on that view, uh, on that topic as well. I mean, what's my most liberal belief? I think, I mean, I think my most liberal policy orientation is on immigration. And I think we should have far, far more legal immigration. And I'm aware that so many people disagree with me on this, that it's, it's just politically impractical, right? Um, there would be so much backlash if we had far, far more immigration that that in practice, it would probably lead to a kind of closing of the borders that wouldn't even make sense if your only goal is to increase immigration. So there's a practical, I would agree with the practical argument for limiting the pace of immigration. But I actually do think that people are wrong to want so little immigration. I think people should want more. I think it's good for the country. It's you know, it's how we are going to stay on top. And, you know, I'm, I'm even persuaded by Brian Kaplan's argument um, for, for open borders or for a version of open borders. I mean, I think it's possible he goes a little too far, but in general, I am, you know, I'm a maximalist about legal immigration and you got, you can, Go back to my episode with Brian Kaplan if you want more on why that isn't as crazy as it sounds. But, I mean, I share almost no overlap with the Republican Party on the issue of immigration. So that would probably be, off the top of my head, my most liberal viewpoint. And with that, this Q&A comes to a close. This has been fun. And I'm going to try to do more of these for, for my subscribers. And so um, please submit questions um, in, in any way that you can. And um, once again, thank you so much for the support. I really appreciate it. And uh, until next time.